Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. Is airing on Tuesday, December 8th, 2020. Hello, everyone. It's Shannon here with you once again. Unfortunately, I don't have new release information for you today. Um, the main things that are coming out are things that you heard us talk about on our most anticipated books of December episode. So, instead of new releases for you, I have a fantastic author interview. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was able to chat with debut novelist Hallie Sutton about her novel, The Lady Upstairs. And I went into this expecting just to kind of chat about the book, and I learned so much about the process of finding your place in publishing. So if you want to hear some more about that, to learn about the online competition that is Pitch Wars, I highly recommend you check out this interview. So before we get started, I have the usual housekeeping information for you. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. And now let's dive straight into this interview with Hallie Sutton on the Book Bistro Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and today I'm chatting with author Hallie Sutton, whose novel The Lady Upstairs was released in the U.S. on November the 17th. So, Hallie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Would you mind giving listeners a little bit of an introduction to this oh-so-fantastically twisty book? Absolutely. So The Lady Upstairs is a modern feminist noir set in Los Angeles about women who run a blackmail agency targeting bad, rich, powerful, corrupt men. And when the book starts, our main character, Joe. Uh, is in the middle of a sting targeting this lecherous Hollywood producer, a kind of notorious casting couch king. And the sting isn't going super well. The girl that she's trained to do the job is starting to have these moral qualms, doesn't want to do it anymore. And that's a problem for Joe because she owes her boss, a woman that she knows only as the lady upstairs, a great deal of money. And this job is going to be the job that squares that debt. So you have a phenomenal audiobook narrator. I really do. Yes. Um, I adore her. She reads so many great things. And I was so excited when I saw that she was um, listed as your narrator. So not that that takes away from the book itself, but I, I just had to tell you that I was so glad to see her 
Thank you. I was so blown away too. I mean, when her name came up on the list of people that we were looking at, I was like, for my little old book, I mean, she's so well known and she has such a, she's such a great reader. I was just beyond thrilled and honored that um, she, she worked on this book. Yes. Bonnie Turpin. I love her. <laughs> but getting back to the actual book. So as I read this, and I am normally not drawn to noir, but I loved the kind of feminist angle that you you gave to this book. And it kind of took it a little bit beyond some of the other more like stereotypical noirs that we see. And so I was just spellbound and really interested in seeing how things were going to turn out for Joe. So thank you so much for writing this. It was fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. That's so kind to hear. Uh, I definitely, you know, the book is kind of steeped in these noir tropes, but I wanted to take a fresh spin on them. So I, I, I appreciate that that worked for you. So can you talk a little bit about sort of your inspiration for writing this book? Sure, absolutely. So I moved to Los Angeles five years ago for grad school. And when I moved here, um, noir seemed kind of like an entry point for me to try to better understand the city that I found myself in that I didn't really understand and didn't really know much about. And, um, you know, it has Los Angeles has such a history of noir with both the film and the literature and the TV shows, you know, Raymond Chandler, James Kane, um, all the great, the great noir films, but it also has this kind of historical precedent in this like core of corruption that has run through the city. That's kind of blanketed over by this beautiful palm trees and the sunshine and, you know, I think uh, we're all kind of drawn to bad things that happen in the sunshine. I think it's this really interesting juxtaposition. So when I was working on this book and it started because I had Joe's voice in my head, she was a very strong character from the beginning, but I was trying to find the right story to put her in. It kind of seemed like a natural fit that, oh, maybe she belongs in a noir novel. And then when I had that come to me, it became very clear that she was going to be a femme fatale, that I was going to try to, um, really create a femme fatale character who is a full three-dimensional woman, which is not always the case in some of the great femme fatales uh, of, of yore, even though I love them. Um, and so, and I wanted it to be a very kind of literal rendering of the femme fatale as well. I didn't want it to just be that she's dangerous because she's desired or that she's this projection of male uh, anxiety. I wanted her to be like, if she had a business card, it says, I destroy men and I don't, I don't care. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so that was really kind of the germ of the idea for the book. I love that. And it's especially interesting to me that you talk about Joe's character voice kind of being in your head almost before the plot was. It's, I'm always really intrigued by what comes first for authors, like the character or the plot, you know, do you, like figure out the story first and then create the character. And it sounds like in your situation, it was the reverse. Was it difficult to find exactly like the perfect story for this strong character? It was, you know, I, she first appeared in a short story and I kind of knew that she was bigger than that, that I was more interested in her and I wanted to spend more time with her. Um, you know, she's just kind of wonderfully snarky and at times unlikable, but I like spending time with her. And so um, trying to find the right vehicle for her was, was a problem. But then when I kind of put that noir piece in there, it was just, it felt almost so obvious. It felt, that's how you kind of, I kind of knew it was the right decision was, it was just like, there was no doubt about it. It was just like, oh no, this is her story. This is it. 
I feel like with certain characters, you know, they almost like drive the story forward on their own. And I know that as a writer, like it can't be that way. Um, but as a reader, it feels like she's just such a strong driving force that like you just have to sort of follow her lead and you have to kind of just like wait and see what she sort of has up her sleeve. And yet, obviously, like you needed to um, be able to create all those things, but it just, it comes off in such an effortless, easy way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, she's very active as a character. She makes a lot of decisions and they tend to be increasingly bad ones, which uh, <laughs> um, as a writer, it's kind of sad to do that to a character to say like, it's only gonna get worse from here, kid. But uh, you know, she she's increasingly desperate and so she's kind of trying to make moves and trying to fix the things that she's broken and along the way creating more and more obstacles and problems for herself. And so I think that became a very uh, generating force force for the plot. So I'm curious to know, as you created this, did you ever kind of write yourself into a corner and be like, oh, wait, like this actually doesn't work. Like I have to, I have to correct this or fix this. Absolutely, I did. Um, so I started this novel when I was in grad school, and I was in grad school getting my master's um, in creative writing. And so this was my master's project that I was working on. And my first year of grad school, I wrote about 120 pages of the novel that I ended up scrapping um, all but 10 of. I had just written myself into a corner, and I got to a point um, where Raymond Chandler has this great advice when he says, when you don't know what to do when you're writing, bring in a man with a gun. And I had li literally <laughs> gotten to <laughs> a point where I had to bring in a man with a gun. And I was just like, okay, I, this isn't working anymore. I don't see how she gets out of this. This isn't going to, this isn't going to go. So I scrapped most of the book, rewrote it my second year of grad school. And then even from there, ended up doing a tremendous amount of work uh, revising the book that really kind of changed the plot and changed when things happened in the plot. There's a big uh, event that happens in almost exactly the middle of the book now, but when I first wrote the book, it was uh, a big event, like I would say 20% into the book, and it, it just became clear that there was nowhere for the book to go if it happened that early. So it, it was a lot of kind of tinkering with like, what is the thing that's going to make this the most satisfying narrative arc? So when you first sat down to write this, did you try to write it kind of chronologically, like the way that you envisioned it happening from beginning to end? Or did you skip around and write various like scenes out of order and then have to splice them together? I definitely wrote scenes out of order. Um, and I think a lot of that was because I kind of didn't know where I was going with the story yet. So anytime I had a strong feeling about Joe in a scene, I would write that scene even if I didn't know where it was gonna go. Cause it was just a good way to get to know her and to get to know the world that I was building. Um, but a lot of the work in revision ended up being figuring out which of those scenes were actually valuable, which of those scenes fit with the plot. And then there were things that like, I think that there were things that happened in chapter two uh, in the first part of the book that now happened in the very last chapter. So it was like, I knew this was in the story somewhere, it's just not the right place. So it's, you're kind of puzzling things together as you go. Or, it, or I am anyway. <laughs> I feel like I would be really, really confused if I tried <laughs> to write that way. Like I've always been, you know, when I was in grad school, I didn't, you know, outline things. Like when mm -hmm. you write a paper, people are always saying like, oh, you know, make an outline. Mm -hmm. And I imagine um, that, you know, when you're writing a book, people are even more 
sort of stringent on that idea that you have to have an outline. And I never outlined my papers, mm-hmm. but I also wrote them, you know, in, in an order. And I can only imagine how much harder that would be for my poor brain if I tried to write it out of order and then go back and be like, hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I will say the way that I went about writing this book, there was probably a much more efficient way to do it. (laughs) So yes, I agree with you. Um, And weirdly enough, I didn't, I outlined the book after I had written about two drafts of it. And that was the way that I kind of figured out where my plot was weak um, was because then I took like a plot framework of Save the Cat Writes a Novel and basically put those plot beats over the novel that I had. And it was very clear to me which ones were missing, which ones were in the wrong place. Um, but I didn't do that until I had already written a couple of drafts of the book. So then you had a lot more information about your character and your plot by the time mm-hmm. you actually sat down and outlined it. Yes, I did. And for me, that was really helpful. But like I said, probably not the most efficient way to write a book. <laughs> So from start to finish, how long did this take you? It took me three and a half years. Wow. Yes. And what was your publication journey like? Like, did you always kind of anticipate getting this published or did you write it for your grad school project and then just kind of like not really know where it would go after that? I always really hoped that it would be published and knew that I wanted to try to pursue getting it published, that it was more than just the thing that I was doing to satisfy my master's requirements. Um, I think part of that was just, you know, Joe Joe had too strong a voice. She didn't want to stay in the dark. So I knew that I wanted to get her out there. Um, my path to publication was that after I finished my grad school, uh, my grad school tenure, I started querying the novel and I sent it to a lot of agents and got a lot of feedback that was essentially like, this isn't right for me, which is totally valid. Agents are very busy people, um, but it doesn't really give you a direction for what the problem is in your book. So I was lucky enough to get the world's best rejection from an agent named Sharon Pelletier. And she took the time and sent me like eight paragraphs of feedback, like this works, this oh, is wow. weak. Yeah, this is what I would want to see if you, you know, we're going to revise it and resubmit it. So she really took the time to like tell me what she thought the issues were with the book. And that was unbelievably helpful and generous. Um, and so that made me very sure that I needed to revise the book again in like a deeper way. And so that actually led me to applying to Pitch Wars, which is this online mentoring program that happens once a year. Um, pairing established writers with up and coming writers who have a book length project that needs a lot of work. And so you spend three months with your mentor if you get picked revising, um, basically seeing how much you can polish your book before an agent showcase at the end of those three months. And I was lucky enough to be picked by a writer named Lane Fargo who writes (gasps) feminist thrillers. Oh, Oh, you know Lane. (laughs) Lane is fabulous. Um, And so her books, Temper and They Never Learn, are two, like, wonderful, twisty, super well-plotted, super well-written feminist thrillers. And she took me, yes, she took me under her wing, and she was the one who really um, helped me kind of actually outline at that point and showed me where my plot was weak. And we did a lot of work really revising in those three months um, to get the book to a much closer version of what it is today. And I actually ended up signing with that agent who had sent me such nice feedback and she's now my agent today and so it was ended up being a very happy story in the end so you are the first author that I've talked to who has actually 
like been picked for pitch wars. So I really, really love that. It's something that I see online all mm-hmm. the time. Like I see people talking about it and I see various people, you know, talk about like submitting things for it, but I've never actually spoken to anyone who has successfully kind of gone through the process and had that really like work out for them. So that's very, very cool. Thank you. Yeah, it was an unbelievable experience. It made me such a better writer and, uh, it really is kind of amazing to see how much change you're capable of creating in your book in three months with the right motivation. And like, uh, it was incredible. Lane did, Lane helped me change so much in that book to make it stronger. So I would imagine that they try to pair you with somebody who has experience in like the genre or subgenre that you're writing in. So you actually get to pick who you apply to. If you're a mentee applying, yeah, you get to pick. um, So there's usually like 105 to maybe 115 mentors every year. It's people who volunteer and they have to be kind of vetted to see if they're like a good fit for the program. Um, Right. Yeah. And as a mentee, you get to pick four of all those mentors, which span all sorts of genres and all sorts of ages, you know, kids to middle grade to YA to adults. Um, and so I applied to Lane, um, and then three other mentors. And so if, if somebody really connects with your book, evidently the story Lane likes to tell is that she connected with my book very early. And so was saying like, no, no, hands off. This one's mine. This one's mine. (laughs) (laughs) So then you do like an agent showcase at the end that, um, you had said, and then once that's done, then is that when you kind of get to make your decision about like signing with an agent and kind of moving forward in the process, if that seems like something that is likely to happen? It it absolutely was. Um, I ended up getting offers of representation from three different fabulous agents um, out of the showcase, which was amazing. And so um, it was it was like my version of being on The Bachelorette, you know, trying to figure out who <laughs> I was giving. <laughs> Exactly. Who I was like going to give my rose to. Um, and it was Sharon. Sharon was just, you know, uh, the the amount of time that she had spent on my book, even even when she was passing on it, kind of told me about the kind of agent she was going to be and the kind of person I wanted to work with. Um, but yes, that was the point at which, you know, you made that decision. And then Sharon and I revised the book together for a few more months. And then we took it out on sub. And I think within two weeks, we had an offer from Putnam, which was amazing. And then Danielle Dietrich, my editor at Putnam, has just been fantastic and helped me get the book to the version that it is today. And just like, I'm so, so grateful for her and her editorial vision. This is a fantastic story, both like the story that you tell in the book, but also just hearing how you got to this point. I feel like for a lot of people, you know, it's it's almost like a a thing that happens by chance. Like Mm -hmm. people are like, oh, you know, and then like so and so read my book and they were like, wow, you should get this published. And so I really, really like hearing kind of your your process and how much you've you've worked to get to where you are and kind of the people that have been influential in helping you out. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just a really, really fascinating process. And I'm so glad that you're sharing it. 
Thank you. Yeah. I mean, there are so many uh, amazing resources and the writing community can be so generous and like uh, donating their time. I mean, nobody gets paid for participating in pitch wars. You just, you do it because you think it's a good thing to do. And for the last two years, actually, I've been co-mentoring with Lane Fargo um, and it's just a very rewarding thing to do, but it is, there are all sorts of avenues to being published and uh, just keep knocking on doors. <laughs> That's awesome. So when you aren't writing, what do you enjoy doing? I love to travel, um, which is not happening this you year. Don't right now. <laughs> no, sadly, no. So I've been reading a lot of books that are set in different countries. And that to me has been like this armchair travel that I get to get to undertake. Um, so I love to travel. Uh, I love kind of chasing, you know, Los Angeles is an endlessly fascinating city to me. It just really is there's kind of anything you want here. And so I like to kind of chase some of the historical, um, the historical parts of it. One of my favorite things that I used to do back in the before days when you could go do things like this was uh, I would take these kind of murder bus or tragical history tour uh, of Los Angeles where they would go into some of the infamous crimes like the Black Dahlia oh, wow. or the Manson murders. And it would kind of give you this behind the scenes look at those things in these, um, interesting, thoughtful ways. And I really enjoyed doing that a lot. One of my relatives does something similar to that oh. with like graveyards. Like yes. she goes on all these like graveyard tours and they yes. talk about, you know, who's buried there and mm -hmm. like if it's famous, you know, if it's like a famous person or if the thing that killed them was like a, a famous um, event, mm -hmm. then, you know, they go into all of that and she really, really loves it. I've never done it. Um, but I know that she really enjoys it. So I imagine that it would be a similar type of thing for like a historical um, crime. Absolutely. Yeah. They kind of give some context of the crime and the context of the history in the city in that way. And then, you know, if they're unsolved, sometimes they'll talk about theories about it. But like there's also definitely graveyard tours here in Los Angeles. Um, at one point in the book, uh, the lady upstairs, there's a scene set at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, yes. which is this, yeah, very famous cemetery in Los Angeles that actually shares a plot of land with Paramount Studios, which is like so oh. bizarre and macabre. <laughs> and <laughs> Very, very like L.A. noir. I don't even know what to say about that. I know. <laughs> I actually have a little story about that, which is that um, evidently when the studio was first founded back in the 1910s or 1920s, they wanted to lease half of the land that the cemetery owned, which the cemetery was older, had been there longer. And the cemetery owners basically said, like, yeah, sure. You know, this movie business is going to fail in the next five years. We'll get the land back. And obviously... Oh. <laughs> And they were wrong, and so they're still locked together today. Yeah, that did not work very well for them. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> That's just a really odd, like, combination. Like, we have a cemetery, and then we have, like, a movie studio. Well, you know, that that's fine. Literally next door. You can just walk between them. It's so weird. <laughs> because, like, when I picture, you know, a cemetery, when I really, like, sit here and think about it, which mm -hmm. I don't very often, but if I do... I think of like, you know, it's it's kind of peaceful mm -hmm. and, you know, there's not a lot of like traffic around going in and out. And right. it just seems like if you have a studio right there, you're not going to go and commune with your deceased yes. um, in a very 
nice private way no and it's I mean it's a very beautiful cemetery and it does feel peaceful when you're inside it but it literally is in the middle of like a very busy stretch of Hollywood which is a pretty uh unique thing that is true that's you know that's not the typical vision of a cemetery no like you know especially if you read like I don't know if you read like urban fantasy or anything Uh like that but there's always like the kind of creepy like deserted cemetery which also you know wouldn't work kind of right Right. next door to the studio right right nope uh there are people passing by the cemetery pretty much 24 hours a day (laughs) well then I guess like no dead are going to come up from the ground and attack you without anyone seeing that's true and I always think too you know uh, maybe it's nice if if you're if you're deceased that you have friendly people kind of passing by pretty frequently, you know. And maybe. maybe it's a little company. <laughs> that that's very possible. Yeah. So, what do you enjoy reading? Like, what are your preferred genres? Um, I read pretty wild, widely. I feel like the last few years, I've really been immersing myself in crime fiction, um, uh, which I've always yes. loved, but uh, definitely trying to. Um, you know, understand who's doing what in the genre. One of my favorite authors of all time is Megan Abbott. I just think she is such a great writer, um, such great chewy language and these kind of like dark noir rich stories about, you know, women's interior lives. Um, oh, and she has a new book coming I out. I know. I'm so excited. It's going to be one of the highlights of 2021 for sure. Yes, for me. it is. There, there are yeah. a lot of great things coming out, but yes. I'm particularly excited about that one. Mm-hmm, me too. Because I really loved her book set in like the chemistry lab. Yes. Uh, Give me, give your, me hand. your hand. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That is such a good book. And um, that actually, I don't know, uh, maybe you knew this, but that came out of a real life true crime case that uh, happened in Texas, which I found very interesting. You know, I think when I was reading like the... Um, Oh, like the press material mm-hmm. for that, like when it was first coming out. Um, I think I read something about that. Um, it wasn't something that I like, researched in any depth, but I feel like, like when you say that, that rings mm-hmm. true in my mind. Like, oh, yes, I knew that. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. <laughs> so what have you read recently that you totally fell in love with that you would like to tell people about? I really loved, um, I actually have a couple of different recommendations across the board here. I really loved uh, The Searcher by Tana French. I thought that that oh. was just like, yes, I loved that I'm excited that book. for that. I have it here. Mm-hmm. I really loved it. And I loved it. I mean, she's such a great writer and the mystery and the characters she builds are so phenomenal. But I also loved, you know, we're not really getting to travel in this time, which for True. understandable reasons. So it was nice to spend some time in this kind of Irish village uh, while we came. Um, and then another book that I really loved that came out this year was The Roommate by Rosie Dannon. And it is just like this great romance novel that has this like bananas premise of um, bananas in the best way possible of this kind of uptight young woman who moves to Los Angeles and moves in with a man who's a porn star. And of course, sparks fly and they clash. But it was just like, I read that at the beginning of kind of everything with quarantine. And it was one of the first books that I could like, really sink into. Um, One of my co-hostesses on the podcast, um, her name is Sarah. She read this pretty recently and really, really loved it. In fact, we did a contemporary romance episode a few weeks ago. And that was one of her picks for it. So she'll be glad to know Yes, that, I, um, it was mentioned. Yes, I love that book. It's just so um, 
so fun and so smart and sexy and just so transportive. And I really loved it. Um, and then another book that I had a very similar experience with uh, at the beginning of quarantine, one of the first things that I could really sink into was a book called The Return by Rachel Harrison. Um, oh, yes. Yes. You're familiar? So she was um, interviewed for the show oh. right around the time that that book was coming out. Mm-hmm. And it's such a like super creepy little book so creepy it's so good and I mean just the premise of these you know four four female friends and one of them has gone missing and came back two years later but came back a bit wrong and then the setting of that kind of like very gothic hotel where each room is this kind of uh you know like heightened version of some some sort of uh like really tropey like yeah (laughs) very like themed I was just it was uh another one that was very transportive for me there was that scene where, like, the teeth are just, like, falling out yes. of the person's mouth while they're eating. And I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> so visceral. And yes. maybe maybe I liked it, too, because, you know, there's been so much anxiety this year, you know, un- like. Yes, with, with the Yes. But so it was kind of nice to feel anxiety in a different direction, you know. <laughs> yes, like anxiety over something that's not actually likely to happen. I have fallen yeah. hard in love this year with um, apocalyptic fiction. Oh, yeah. And so I keep reading like all these books about zombies. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like people are, you know, we have a plague here of sorts. And I'm reading about zombies. Hmm. You know, whatever works for you right now. I think we just go with it. Yeah, I think that's true. So I could literally keep talking to you for hours and hours, but I don't think your schedule would appreciate that very much. Yes, but this is so lovely. (laughs) I'm going to let you dash off to your next one. But before you do that, can you let readers know where they can find you online? Absolutely. So you can find me online on Twitter at Hallie underscore Sutton, or you can find me online at on um, Instagram at Hallie Sutton 25, or you can connect with me. I have an author newsletter that you can sign up for on my website, HallieSutton.com. And uh, I promise it is not so much about author promotion as it is about trying to really dive into the world of crime fiction, what podcasts I'm listening to, what books oh. I've read, what articles, yeah, other, other uh, newsletters I recommend. So um, join me there. It's a lot of fun. And you can find the book wherever books are sold. All right. Well, thank you so much. This is a triumph of a first book. Huge congratulations to you on this. And I hope that we see more from you in the future. Thank you so much. It was so lovely to speak with you. Thank you. You too. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.